Tonight's story testimony is, uh, well, Duncan Helwig, as you come up, I'll, I'll introduce what's going on. So Duncan's going to come up. Now, some of you have already seen Duncan around, yeah. So Duncan and his wife, Alicia, they just recently put on that wonderful Valentine's Day dinner that many of you went to, and uh, I was there. And uh, they're also kicking off a, a, a marriage ministry in our church, so they'll be talking about that. But before that, we want to hear from Duncan and, and hear uh, uh, about your story and how God's worked in your life. So it's all yours. <coughs> Pardon me, guys. Good evening. Pleasure to be here and be able to share with you guys what God did for me. So let me first say that in my home, there was no God. My mother comes from a Roman Catholicism background, my father from a Baptist background, but when they joined, there was no God taught in the home, there was no prayer taught in the home, there was no God at all whatsoever. At Christmas parties, I recall uh, all the guys getting together and uh, drinking away, you know, just drinking, drinking, drinking away. That was just the norm. That was the norm. But that also started my consciousness of being empty and knowing that there's got to be more, or at least hoping there's got to be more, right? So as I started experiencing about with my eyes the world, the things of the world, I saw horrible things. I was, I was born in Nicaragua, in Central America, and my parents moved out here to California when I was about eight. I followed when I was about 12. During that time, I stayed with my grandparents out there, and my grandmother was very cruel. She would always say, you know, your parents right now are buying a car because that's more important to them than getting you an airplane ticket. So that kind of set the stage of my foundation of, man, that's a cruel world. Moved over here. And my mother's running towards me. There's this lady, black hair, going back and forth. She's running towards me. I feel nothing. I'm like, okay, I got to do this because I guess I'm your son. I got to be here. Move forward. I have no at all, nothing at all whatsoever connecting my, me with my parents. Are you wanting to be there? But I think in my head, I said, you know what? You guys left me. Forget it. You guys are dead to me. Get to high school. Same thing. But then I found sports. That became my God. I started excelling in wrestling and football, and I got, you know, recognition. But that was short-lived. That was just for a moment. Then high school's over. No more sports. I come out, I go to Golden West College. I wrestled, but it's not the same. Now you're an adult, right? You got to work, you got to find your way. So then I said, you know what, I, traditional school's not for me. Let me go to a, uh, an academy so I can train in something that I want to do. So I wanted to be a radio talk show host. And I wanted to talk against God. Why? You suck. Right? So this whole time, I'm dead on the inside. Dead. Black. I'm an atheist. I would, I would, I would love seeing Christians along my way in those days because I would get in your face. You are fake. There's no God. And I would think sometimes, yeah, I want that battle. But, you know, maybe I hope, <laughs> I think that maybe they just were praying for me. It wasn't worth them 
arguing with me, you know. So I said, you know what? What's going to make me happy? What if I go, what if I do this? What if one year, what if I'm high for one year straight, nonstop, day and night? That didn't work. Let me do it for two years. That didn't work. Okay, now what? I know. Let me pop an ecstasy pill every day for a week. That'll definitely get me where I want to be. I want to be a happy man. You think, you think that worked? <laughs> no, that didn't work. So then one day I'm driving on a Friday night in Huntington Beach, and I cried out, Lord, I need you. I ended up pulling up to a First Baptist Church in Huntington Beach, and it was youth night, and their youth minister came to me and prayed for me, and it was a good, and I told him, you know, right now, I am high as a kite. And he was like, wow. But I sensed up from that moment on, like, I sensed, not like, whoa, freak alert, freak alert. It was more like, man, I feel for you. That young man eventually opened up or helped launch Calvary Chapel Buenos Aires in Argentina, to make a long story short. I found that out years later. Very interesting. Following week, I was going to school to uh, an academy of radio and broadcasting in Huntington Beach. Wednesday night, something's happening to me. I'm still miserable, dark, hate life, hate everything around me, hate where I live, because it was a place where drugs were done. I wouldn't take anyone there, nobody. It's funny, I didn't believe in God, but where I lived, I knew darkness existed. I'm driving, and all of a sudden, K-Wave comes in my radio. And you know what? I'm not listening to K-Wave as an atheist, man. Forget it. I'm not. But somehow, it got there. And then I said, tonight at 7.30, Pastor Chuck's going to be preaching. And I'm like, okay, who's Pastor Chuck? Somehow, someway, I make it there. I have never been there before in my life. I get there. Walk up to the main sanctuary, guess what? It's a Wednesday night, but it is packed. I gotta go to the fellowship hall. I lean against the wall, and I'm like, I'm lost. What am I doing here? I'm lost. And then, bam! It hits me like a bullet, guys. God exists. The Spirit convicted me, and naturally, the first thing I said was, Lord, I'm sorry. But that conviction, it was like short-lived because it was followed by joy. And then that night, I was born again. And then after that, sure, many things changed, but that was the night. And I'm like, wow, there's a God? And he's in the business of doing miracles, saving people from whatever place, darkness you're from, no matter who you are, what you are. And then that night, on Wednesday night, just by listening through the speakers, watching Pastor Chuck on the projector, and you know, if you, of course, you feel like, how do you know me? You're talking to me, right? But yeah, that's the night the Lord saved my soul. And 
no matter what, I said to myself, wow, if it happens to me, if it happened to me, it can happen to anybody. So that's all I got for you guys. Now, hold on, Duncan. Um, <laughs> you guys are getting ready to start the uh, marriage ministry, and when does that start up? March 20th, every third Friday of the month. It's called A&E, named after Adam and Eve. You know, it's, it's proper because we know a marriage is between a man and a woman, okay? So we hope you, you make it out. Uh, we're going to be going through a book called How We Love by Milan and Kay Yurkovich. You can Google it. Uh, we have a sign-up table in the back. Please uh, go sign up if you're interested. If you feel you can't make it, that it's okay. Mark it on your calendar the third Friday of every month. And at the same time, please pray. So that so way... Third Friday of every month. Third Friday of every month. And is there child care? Child care provided. The book is $13.50. Uh, so, you know, don't worry about the money. Uh, Dave said he'll pay for anyone. No, he didn't. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but you'll but sign yeah, up, we'll sign, sign up, up, and then you guys will order the books, and everybody just pays yes. for their books. As so we just want, uh, you know, we, uh, Lisa and I we went to a marriage conference yesterday at Calvary Chapel Tustin, and, uh, you know, we just got to make sure that we keep, uh, you know, What's first, what's first first, which is God. God, then our spouses, and then our kids, and then everything else. But if we follow God's rule, you know, things are gonna work out okay, but we can do it together. We're in it together, so come on and join us. And uh, Now, I, I wanna say this. Uh, Alicia came to our inductive Bible study class, and uh, we took a break for lunch, and at lunch she said, oh, by the way, we just brought some extra food and she made tostados for our entire inductive Bible study class, and it was awesome. So all I'm saying is you want to be around these people. <laughs> Not saying you're going to get fed, but when the time happens, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be happy. <laughs> so anyway, and Alicia is back there with her, her baby. Um, um, oh, my goodness. Levi. I, Levi. Levi, thank you. I, I, it's okay. They have uh, three, three kids, and so uh, baby Levi. So you can meet uh, Alicia back there and... Uh, Talk to them more about the marriage ministry. But we want to encourage you to do that. And I love the fact that it's one Friday a month. So that's going to be really good for our married couple. So thank you so much. Thank and thanks for sharing. And sure I'm excited to have Alicia come up next time and share. She's got some incredible things that God's done in her life. And even in the life of their marriage, uh, it's, it's been it's really awesome. So we're going to have you hopefully very soon here. Uh, well, we're approaching Easter, and we're, we're in the Easter season as we, as we go, and I wanted to share one more story with you tonight, and that's the story of Nicodemus, so we'll play this video here. Six hundred and thirteen. I had six hundred and thirteen rules to follow. Can you imagine that? Can, can, can you even understand how many that is? And, 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 and I, I knew every one of them, and I followed them, mostly. So there I am, sitting across from Jesus. And he looks at me and says, Nicodemus, it's not about the rules. <laughs> I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, but essentially that's what he's saying. It's, 
Not about the rules. Not about the rules. Look at this from, from my perspective. Um, I'd seen him come in the day before, and, and, and he had turned the temple upside down. This is the place, mind you, that, that I'd spent my life preserving. So you can imagine how much I wanted to have a talk with him in a secluded place at nighttime. How would you feel if someone, someone said to you, someone you respected, they tell you that everything that you'd dedicated your life to had missed the mark completely. You're a fool. That's how you I said something to him. One rule that seems too good to be true, because it was. Believe he's the Messiah. Believe he's the one that was promised. He said it. like He just glazed over it like it was some simple thing and went on talking about good and evil. And I'm thinking, wait, go back. Go back to where you took what was so complicated and made it not complicated. My whole life was in those complications. My, my religion was in those complications, making sure to follow the details of the law. I made sure that every T was crossed. I thought that was what was going to save me. 613 laws. love that saved me. For God so loved. Well, tonight we are going to be encountering the law as, as the Pharisees and scribes uh, challenge Jesus in Mark chapter 7. So let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Mark 7. And then, um, you know, I, uh, Lord willing, God be with me. I, I'll have, I'm just a little scatterbrained. Uh, we had a retreat all weekend and uh, we were out in the desert with the youth kids. And uh, so I, I got to go help, but, uh, but I come back and I'm like so tired. But one of the things about desert trips that uh, is so interesting, we go out there and 
We were having all this fun. We were doing paintball with the kids. And where we go camping, there's no showers or anything. So, you know, you're just like, okay, I'll just be dirty for a couple days or whatever. We got, you know, we got out there Friday night, played, did off-roading. The trucks are just full of dirt. Every, there's dirt everywhere. And I get home, and, and now most of you probably don't know this, but I, I am facially hair challenged, uh, meaning that when I try to grow on facial hair, it just looks dirty. I, I just look like I have this just dirt on me. So when I come home from the desert, I look in the mirror, I'm like, yeah, it's growing in pretty good. I'm looking, it's looking thick. Well, then I take a shower, and as the, as the water washes down, and look at the bottom of the shower, I'm like, ooh. It's just like muddy water. It's like, I didn't realize I had that much dirt. Then I get out of the shower, and I'm like, no, it's not doing any better. It's still the facially hair challenged. But you know, tonight's passage is all about being dirty but still being able to worship God. And, and I, I love this passage. Part of it is because uh, for the New Testament Christian, it, it opens up the doors to the gospel. It, it tells us in this passage that it's not about the ceremony, it's not about the laws, but it's truly about the heart. So we can meet the person in the gutter and worship God there. We can go out to the desert in the midst of the dirt and worship God. God there. We can commune with God because it's all about the heart. And that's where we're getting into in Mark chapter 7 tonight. So if you'll turn there with me, verse 1, and we'll uh, read through the first part of this passage. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men." Let me pause there for a moment and just try to help unfold this scene so that we can see it more clearly. Now, first of all, notice in that first verse, it says the Pharisees uh, gathered to, to him with some scribes who had come down from Jerusalem. Remember, we've been talking about how Jesus' fame is growing. People are coming from all over, and now we have these scribes, these Teachers of the law. Remember, the scribes, when we think about a lawyer in our culture, we think of somebody who goes to court and they, or they write letters or uh, they, you know, uh, of course, we've got all manner of jokes. Uh, they're the sharks, you know, whatever the case is. You, we, ha- we have these ideas of what a lawyer is. Now, a scribe is essentially a lawyer, okay, but not in the sense like we see him. We see that a scribe is an expert in the law. The, the law of God, those 613 precepts that Nicodemus was talking about in that video. But more than that, the scribes studied also the, the writings in the Talmud. They, they studied all the other writings of previous, 
previous uh, rabbis, and they, they knew the law. And that's what they, they, so they've heard about what's going on in, around Galilee. And they come down too, and the Pharisees grab hold of them. Now, the Pharisees weren't always schooled. The scribes were always schooled. They were very well educated. Pharisees, it was, it was here and there whether or not they were edu- uh, formally educated. But nonetheless, they were devout Jews. And what they noticed here and they challenged Jesus on is, hey, your disciples eat with defiled hands. Now, for a Pharisee, for a scribe, this is so important. The clean hands, the cleanliness is associated with righteousness. If you did the ceremonial washings right, you'd be more righteous. Now, nowhere in the law of God does it talk about how to do it. I mean, there's laws about cleanliness for sure within Leviticus, the Levitical law, and and you see some of it show up in Exodus and Numbers. And there are laws about that. But to the extent that they took it, they took it much farther than that. They would even talk about having the water measured out properly. So you couldn't even wash your hands by yourself. You had to have somebody ho- holding up the cup and pouring it over, and you wash your hands, and you, you talk, and you figure out how much time and how many times to, to scrub. And I mean, the laws on this hand washing were so detailed. And so what they see is the disciples eating food with the vile hands. Now, who are the disciples? Well, some of them are fishermen. Blue-collar workers. They're not going to be all into nice manicured hands and stuff. They, they're, they're, okay, uh, cool. Hands are clean. Let's do this. <laughs> you know, I'm ready to eat. And so the Pharisees and the scribes see this, and notice what they do. They challenge Jesus on it. Okay, we've caught something. They didn't come down from Jerusalem to say, wow, what is God doing here through Jesus? They didn't come down to worship God. They came down to trap Jesus. So they're looking around. Okay, here's where I can pick it apart. Imagine today walking into a church and you're like, oh, I, you know, this church is growing. This evangelical church is growing. Uh, You know what? I bet you they're they're handing out drugs or something in the doorway. So we're going to find out what's going on there and we're going to go over and just, you know, criticize everything about them. I mean, that's essentially what was going on here with the Pharisees and the scribes. They go purposely to criticize, to catch Jesus, to, to uh, uh, de- devalue his ministry, and, um, and he's going to challenge them. Notice Mark gives us this long parenthetical statement about how they washed not only their cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. It was a big deal to the Pharisees. In fact, the Pharisees and scribes when they went into the marketplace, for fear that they had come into encountered with somebody who was unclean or unrighteous, they would go and do the ceremonial washings. Just for the fear that, hey, I may have touched something that someone else touched, or I may, may have bumped into somebody who was unclean in some way, and now I've got to go through all the ceremonial washing too. And so they say, hey, Jesus... Why don't your disciples walk according to the tradition of the elders? Notice that. It's not, hey, Jesus, how come your disciples don't follow the law of God? It's not, your disciples are breaking what Moses commanded. No, it's, how come they don't walk according to the tradition of the elders? First mistake there. 
their rules had become built upon the traditions of men, and they looked really good. Everybody around would look at them and doing, seeing their washings and seeing how, how holy they looked and how righteous they looked, and it looked great. But what good is looking good if you can't even recognize the Son of God? How good is it for you to look holy and completely miss Jesus Christ, God's revelation of himself to man? How good is that? How profitable is that? It's a, worth nothing. Yeah, you look good. You look holy. You, you, you're saying the right things. You're doing the right things. The people are respecting you. But you yourself, you've completely missed God. And so Jesus calls him on this, and he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. First thing is, you can say, Oh, I love God, I love God, or I'm a Christian, or I follow God. You can say all these things. You can say how holy you are. You can say how, how you can be a Jew and follow all these laws and you can honor God with your lips, but it's the heart that matters. It's what's in the heart. It's, it's whether or not the heart honors God and the heart loves God. And, and the Pharisees and the scribes are going to totally miss this. In vain do they worship me, teachings as doctrines, the commandments of men. Jesus just reaches back into the prophet, the prophet's and quotes from Isaiah and shows that, hey, you guys are saying you honor God. You look like you're honoring God. You even think that you're honoring God. But you're doing this for yourself in vain. How frustrating is that? To try your hardest to look good and to look righteous and completely miss the mark. Here's the deal about Christianity, guys. I, just, I want to make sure we're clear on this. Christianity is not about you trying really hard. Okay? I'll tell you right now. Christianity is not about that at all. Christianity is about your surrender. About you going, can't do it. I need you, Jesus. Done. Because it's been done for you. He took the punishment and the penalty for your sin. And by his blood, we are cleansed. By his blood. That's what Christianity is about. Christianity is entrusting in the one who could do it for us. Not about us fighting and working hard to look clean and look righteous. So Jesus goes on in verse 9 to say this. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So Jesus gives them one example in their confrontation about how they twist the laws of God for the traditions of men. One of which is how they abuse the laws of God in order for, to, for their own gain, for their own benefit. And this first one is not honoring mother and father. You know, when we think about that commandment of honor your mother and father, we tend to think of it as in the context of, while well, I'm a child, I should honor my mother and father. But, but actually, Jesus tells us here that 
the context goes well beyond that. Now, honor your mother and father doesn't necessarily mean that you always do what they say, even as an adult once you're outside the house. But it does mean you honor them, you respect them. And here, in Jesus' day, it was important for the children to take care of the parents. There was no retirement. There was no social security. If, if somebody was old and they couldn't work anymore, they were on their own if they didn't have kids. It was so important that the kids took care of the parents. But instead of taking care of their parents and honoring them, as Moses said, they said, oh, son, I, hey, I'd love to help you out, mom and dad, but this money's devoted to the Lord. And uh, to quote Nacho Libre, these are the Lord's chips, <laughs> right? These, <laughs> those who have seen Nacho Libre get it. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but the, the whole point is that they say, well, we don't have to give this. We're going to get out of giving you this money and say, it's, it's kind of like the idea of saying, well, I want to give a, a tithe to God. I actually had friends who, who did this one time at a harvest crusade. They, they went to the harvest crusade and they thought, oh, yeah, I should give some money to God. Well, I found out that a proceed of everything I buy at the, the booth goes to God, so that, that, that'll be my tithe. So I'll calculate out, okay, I, I, I need to give this much to the Lord, so I'm going to go and buy all these hats and bumper and all this gear at the, at the uh, souvenir booth from the harvest crusade, and sweet, I've given my tithe. See, it's just, it's just doing acrobatics around the heart of the issue. For my friends, they were too immature in Christ at that point to know that the heart was messed up. See, they, they wanted to twist the whole idea of giving to somehow benefit them. And giving's not about us. Giving's about what the Lord has done for us. Giving's about being dependent upon the Lord. Knowing that, all right, God, you provided for me. I'm giving back to you. No, Lord, I, I don't see how this is going to work, but I will faithfully set apart this amount. If it means I cut out something else in my life, whatever, I'm just going to faithfully set aside this part, this portion, it's yours, Lord. And I'll do that first. And versus the idea of, of doing these acrobats, well, how can I make this work in my favor? Oh, I know. You know what? I really want to go on a retreat, so eh, there's my tithe. I'm going on the retreat, or I'm going to go, that's my time. You know, we don't want to do that, because it's the heart of the matter. Don't play games. God knows the heart. If you don't want to give a full tithe, then give what you've set apart in your heart to give to the Lord. Don't play these, these, do these stretching around and acrobats around what God says. Don't convince yourself that you're doing something that's really only benefiting you. And that's what they were doing here. They were, they were working around the law to benefit themselves. And notice Jesus calls them on it. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And Jesus goes right to Moses. He says, here's what the law says. You guys are quoting me traditions. Well, guess what? I have someone who supersedes your traditions. I actually know the law. And here's what it says. And this is what you're doing. Let's go down to verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but things that come out of a person are what defile him. And we, when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? 
Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus just, this is one of those blow your mind moments for the Jews, for the disciples. Okay? This is a, this is a big deal. And, and I, I like that video with Nicodemus because it kind of portrays that. It was all about the law. It was about keeping the law. And then Jesus comes on the scene and helps get to literally the heart of the matter. And so he calls the people together and he tells them that, listen, it's not stuff from outside. It's not eating unclean foods that makes you impure. It's, it's not about ingesting some dirt. You know, when you're a kid, they're like, God made dirt and dirt don't hurt. And so anything that falls on the ground, you're like, oh, I'm going to do it. Now, of course, nowadays we know that it does hurt. Uh, there was a Mythbusters one time that uh, they, they did petri, those Petri dishes and they swabbed, like, the bathrooms and the, everything to find out, like, you know, what, does the seven-second rule really matter? You know, can, can you draw something? It's like, seven-second rule? Oh, there we go. Good. <laughs> you know? And uh, so, of course, so they dropped everything. They would drop things for, and, and with a time clock in seven seconds and pick it up and then put it in the dish and see what grew. Uh, <laughs> and so... They, uh, they, they found all these areas that were very dirty, and, and the seven-second rule didn't matter at all for the bacteria. But, you know, here Jesus is telling them that it's really about the heart. It's what comes out of the person that's defiling. See, you and I have this problem. We have a sin nature. We've been born with sin. We've been born with it. It's a part of what we've inherited from our parents, and it's in us, and it's pervasive, you know, I've been, I teach an apologetics class at the School of Ministry on Thursday mornings, and we spend about two weeks on the subject or, or the problem of evil and just talking about what about evil, what is evil, where does evil come from, and helping the guys in the class to understand what evil actually is. Evil is an absence of goodness. It's not a thing in itself. Evil is not, not some f- rival force to God. Evil is the absence of goodness. It's like darkness is the absence of light. Darkness is not a thing. Or let me give you a better illustration. It's like a hole. A hole is the absence of dirt. You, we can't go down to Home Depot and buy a hole, right? Like, I need a hole here. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome for building a fence? If you could go and say, I need, I, I need a two-foot by four-foot hole or whatever the case is, and you go down and buy one, boom, <laughs> awesome, you know? No, but we have to remove the dirt. It's the absence of the dirt. Evil is the absence of God's goodness in our lives. Remember God created everything and he said it was good. He created Adam and Eve and said it is good. See, we were created good in the image of him, but sin entered through our rebellion, through the temptation and Adam and Eve falling 
And that's where sin entered. And now we have hearts that have an absence of goodness in it. We're not just good. It's, it's kind of like rust. Well, we did some shooting with the uh, youth kids this weekend. And um, we're teaching them how to shoot 22s and stuff and, and uh, shotguns. It was, it was pretty fun. And uh, when we were out there, uh, one of, one of uh, the youth leaders pulls out his shotgun, sits on the table. I'm like, ah, you're a bad gun owner. And because uh, he had some rust pits on the, on the barrel. And, and then I said, but don't look at my guns. <laughs> you know, because you, you need to make sure you wipe down a gun with oil because it'll rust over time. It, it just moisture gets in there and it rusts. And it's interesting about rust because it's so corrosive. It, 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 it causes the breakdown of, of the integrity of, of what the steel actually is, the metal, that important part. And I really think that's what sin is like. Sin gets in us and starts to break down the goodness. And we're born with it. And so Jesus, Jesus um, tells them that, hey, it's not the outside, it's from the inside that the defiling comes. So now he goes into the house with the, the disciples and they ask him the same question. Hey, tell us about this parable. Now, we don't normally consider this a parable at all. In fact, you'll never find it in any commentary listed as a parable. What it is, though, is Jesus is telling them something, and they don't get it. They're not understanding it, and they say, all right, we don't get it. Now, Jesus uh, responds to them, then are you also without understanding? And literally, what he's saying is, why are you so dull? Okay? Uh, stupid is as stupid does sort of thing. The, the force comes saying, you know, why do you not get this? They were having trouble. Their hearts themselves, remember, we saw last week that their hearts were struggling with hardness of heart. They were, God was, Jesus was breaking down their hearts still. And they, they were reluctant to give up the laws and the traditions of man. Just like sometimes we are, we're reluctant to give up our works for salvation sometimes. And so Jesus asked them, why are you without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? And he begins to say that, one, he declares all foods clean. And then he, he says, that, hey, listen, when you eat something, and by the way, Jesus is, he's, he's real, you know. When you eat something, it goes into your stomach, and then you expel it. And it's gone. The, the uncleanliness goes away. Okay? But the uncleanliness comes from the inside, from the heart. What we eat doesn't make us unclean. I like what Chuck Smith says about um, this passage. One of the things he talks about is uh, as far as eating foods, he said, you know, don't, don't, don't eat pizza at midnight and ask God to bless it. <laughs> you know, just take the hit. Thank God for the pizza at midnight and take the hit and just recognize that you will expel it. So, so I, I just really like that comment. So real. So, uh, thus he declared all food cleans. What comes out of the person is what defiles him. Now, notice what he says. From the heart of man, all these things come. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. By the way, this is why we will never have a utopia until Jesus takes up lordship on this earth. We will never, man will never be able to achieve the utopian society. We will never be able to achieve peace because our hearts are dark. It's just the problem we have. 
Now, there's a lot of people today that are, uh, meditation is coming back in big. I read an article in the newspaper or parade about meditation, and it was encouraging people to meditate, and it was saying, hey, meditation is healthy for you, you know, clear your thoughts. All the, look at all these stars and powerful people that do meditation on a regular basis. And, and by the way, I love how they try to use stars and powerful people to convince us of things. When we see constantly stars breaking up their marriages, we see stars talking about how depressed they are. We see stars dying of drug overdoses. But yeah, we should follow them because they're a movie star, right? They're just as wrecked as we are as people. And, and so this whole idea of meditation, I'll tell you right now, that is so ungodly. And, I'll, and I want to encourage you, if you meditate now, get rid of it. He said, well, pastor, doesn't the Bible say we should meditate? Listen, meditation in the Bible is very different than Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation says, think about nothing. Do some soul searching. The problem's our heart. Don't look to yourself for help. Because you're the problem. The Bible says meditate upon the Word of God. Chew on the Word of God. Think about the Word of God. Fill up your life with the Word of God. Those are the things we're supposed to meditate on. And the idea is chew on it. Get up in the morning. Read the Word. Put together a little Bible verse and say, I'm going to memorize this verse this week. And, and while you drive every stoplight, look at your little verse and go, okay, I got this. And then you go again. And you start meditating upon the Word of God. You're looking to God who is outside of your problems and is above and beyond your problems to enter into your life and bring healing. Don't look to yourself. Because the fact is, is we can't do it. Turn with me over to Colossians chapter 2, if you will. And normally I, I don't read huge passages from other places, but Paul is dealing with this in the church at Coloss. In the church at Coloss, the uh, Colossians are being convinced that they need to bring in some sort of asceticism. They, they, need, to, they need to take on the Jewish traditions. And I, and I met somebody like this one time, uh, recently actually at a Christmas party. He, he uh, is a Christian who is also uh, a Messianic Jew. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Messianic Jews, but he's really big on holding to the traditions of the Jews. And he told me at the dinner that the laws, the, 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 the whole freedom that the New Testament talks about is really just to help introduce the Gentiles into the kingdom of God and eventually to teach them all the laws of God. And so we shouldn't be eating ham for dinner. I beg to differ with that. In fact, Paul begs to differ with that. And this is what Paul says in, in verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So first thing Paul says in verse 8 is, don't be taken captive, do not be deceived by these empty philosophies. These philosophies that have to do with human traditions. Forget what humans say is good. What does Christ say is good? Now skip down to verse uh, 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon Sabbath. Now, see, 
Paul recognized that the Colossians were feeling condemned because these Judaizers were coming in saying, or, or you know, we're not sure if it's totally Judaizers, but these people were coming in saying, oh, well, you're not spiritual enough because you don't keep this law and, or you don't keep this tradition and you don't, you don't pray this way and you don't do this and you eat that food. And Paul says, rubbish. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The law is a shadow of things to come, of Christ. The substance is Christ. The, the, the feast of Israel were a shadow of Christ. They were showing us Christ, but the substance is Christ. So let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here's the fact, and, and be careful, dear Christians. Be very careful about grabbing hold of traditions to feel spiritual or to feel religious. Yeah, you can see somebody doing some sort of tradition and think, oh man, that, 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 that looks really intriguing and it looks like you can feel really spiritual. But listen, they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They don't change the heart. They don't deal with the heart. It doesn't matter how holy you look or the traditions you hold to, it has to start in the heart. Coming to church every Sunday, it's not going to save you. I mean, I like, I like seeing you here. You guys are nice people. You look really nice, and it's, I, I'm glad you're here. But this won't save you. Telling people about how you go to church every Sunday, not going to help you. Going and working with the poor, that's a good thing to do. But it's not going to save you. It's not going to change the heart. Christ alone can change the heart. He is the substance. And that's what he's getting across here in this passage. Now, let's real fast go to verse 24 and see how this is actually played out in this chapter. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in a bed and the demon gone. Now, Mark, I think, purposely puts this in here because we've been talking about clean and unclean. Now he's going to show how Jesus deals with a Gentile, the most unclean. By the way, Jews wouldn't eat with Gentiles. Oh, no, no, no. Because if you dip your food 
into the sauce or the dip or the rice or whatever it is, if you dip your hand in there and they dip their hand in there, you're unclean. So you don't eat with Gentiles. Gentiles were the dogs to the Jews. And this was about as worse of an insult as you could get. And by the way, I don't think Jesus means it as an insult here. And, and that's what we have trouble with is because we see like, well, why would Jesus call this lady a dog? It's kind of messed up. It's kind of outside his character. Well, he's really challenging this woman. See, the dog, they were called dogs because dogs were scavengers. And they scavenged off of everybody else and they were never satisfied. So the Jews saw the Gentiles as those scavengers constantly trying to take by force the kingdom of God. Constantly trying to take what they had. And, not, and they were never satisfied. And so this term, dogs, just became part of the Gentile speech. So this woman comes up and says, I've got a baby. I've got a child who's demon-possessed. I need you to help her. And Jesus, with his response, saying, hold on. I didn't come yet for you. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Well, why is, that, why is it that way? Well, here's the deal. The law was revealed to the Jews first. They were God's covenant people. Through the Jews, God is bringing the gospel out. That's how it was intended to be. Notice how with Paul and, and, some of the, and Peter and them, they didn't need as much uh, training because they already understood the law. The Holy Spirit showed them how to apply it in Christ, and bam, they were missionaries ready to go. The Gentiles sometimes need a little more training, a little more understanding to understand the Scriptures. And so, so here this woman comes and he says, it's not right to take the children's bread. This belongs to the children of Israel. It's not right to give it to the dogs, the scavengers. And this woman replies so, so perfectly, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs, even the scavengers, take the scraps from the children. Even those scavengers, we get a little bit of scraps. And so for that, he says, you're, you're, you, you, for this statement, you go your way. Basically, what he's saying is, you've exercised faith. You've exercised faith. And for that, your child is healed. Wow, unclean versus clean. This unclean person comes to Jesus, gets her way. Why? Because of the heart. It's the heart of the matter. It's the heart. If, if I want to be clean, I need to look to Jesus. If I want to be spiritual, I need to go to Jesus, not to myself. If I need healing, I need to go to Jesus, not look inward. I've got to look to God. Last passage of this chapter. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to the heaven, <clears throat> he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open." And his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, 
And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now Mark is ending this, this chapter with this, this thing because he wants you to know the Pharisees and the scribes, they come down to challenge Jesus. And they come down and say, hey, your people aren't as holy as our people. But as he heals this man, notice what the crowds are saying now. He has done all things well. Hey, you guys may be rejecting Jesus, but we know what we're seeing and he's doing all things well. Let me talk about this healing for a minute because it's kind of strange as we read it. This man who is deaf and can't speak comes to Jesus. Well, it sounds kind of funny that Jesus is putting fingers in his ears, right? It's like, yeah, and then spitting and then touching his tongue. And it's like, what is going on here? And, um, you know, sometimes people, people say, uh, well, Jesus always did things differently, so we wouldn't get formulaic about praying for people or whatever the case is. Well, I, I, I like that idea, and I agree with that, but I think there's a much more simpler explanation from this. If, if I'm deaf and I can't speak very well, uh, clearly they didn't have sign language in Jesus' day. So how is Jesus going to tell them that, do you want to be healed? How else is Jesus going to ask the man if he wants to exercise faith? It's going to point to his ears. Do you want these things to work? What about your tongue? Do you want this to work? Do you want to be able to talk? Here. Healed. I, I, I think it's much more simpler than that. I think Jesus was basically telling the man, do you want to be healed? In a way that he could understand it. And it allowed this man to exercise his faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus touches this man and says, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Imagine everybody looking around. Whoa, wait a minute, we know this guy. He can't talk. He's deaf. I played water polo uh, in college and my coach was also the coach of the deaf national team. By the way, I, I was a lot smaller back then when I played water polo. So... Um, <laughs> But anyway, I, my coach was the coach of the deaf national team, so we the, uh, so we would uh, practice with them on a regular basis, and and uh, they were actually quite amazing because you know obviously they're deaf, but they would be able to watch the ref and the the game while they're playing, and, the, and they were just as good as us. I mean, they were just as good. We just relied more on our hearing, but. Um, you know, they would, uh, they would say things, and, you know, it sounded, their, their speech was sometimes, you couldn't really tell what was saying on it, but they're signing it while they're saying it to each other, and then they'd go do the stuff. Meanwhile, you know, we're just trying to swim and catch the ball, let alone not even trying to sign while doing it, right? And uh, they were just amazing guys, and I actually became really good friends with these guys, because and, and, uh, I actually started playing with them my senior year in high school. So, so they, they, uh, they would just kind of beat up on me. So I would just try to, I would try to like sign something to them, which of course I wasn't signing anything. And, and, then, um, and then they were just like, all right, you're going to make fun of us? And they just punch me and <laughs> dunk me and hold me under and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, I became good friends. But I was amazed at how well they could play water polo and how well they, they were attuned to it. But they couldn't speak normal. That was for sure. You could tell that they were deaf from birth, the ones who were deaf from birth. And... Um, and this man, I, I know if I would have seen one of them all of a sudden here, of course, you can't see that happen, can you? You can't see someone be given the back their hearing. But you sure can hear 
than being given back their tongue to talk. And the response of the people is astonishment beyond measure. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Listen, Pharisees and scribes, say what you will, but I know what he's doing, and I know what he's teaching, and he's doing it well. He's doing it really well. Listen, if Jesus does this well for them, he will definitely do it well in your life. You just need to surrender. You just need to give it all over to him. Let Jesus do do life well in you. I want to challenge you with that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this night. We thank you for your word. And uh, God, we just ask with open hearts, Lord, we can't do it on our own. We need more of you in our life. We want people to see you through us, Lord. We want to reflect your image more and more. So please, God, take over, take charge of this life. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.